Welcome to Olympian Method. My name is Sean. And I'm Wolf. We are here to ask the big questions in philosophy. And we're going to provide answers, but then we're going to doubt those answers. And you're, you should doubt them too, quite honestly. So please let us know your comments and thoughts down below. Philosophy is a dialogue. We like to think that we're talking with you. We're not just talking with, with each other. Exactly. We're trying to, we actually are trying to encourage a broader discussion about everything Everything. Freedom of speech is so important. That was one of the things we closed with in our last episode. Yeah. So, Wolf, this topic is not easy because it's so broad and it's so vague. Post postmodernists don't even have a consensus of, among themselves about what even constitutes what postmodernism is. Um, and so it's it makes it it's it's almost like. You, the the act of extreme skepticism makes dialogue almost impossible because if you doubt everything ad infinitum it's impossible to communicate and when you can't communicate it i hate to say it, i feel like it almost always leads to violence or some sort of vacuum um yeah nature abhors a vacuum nick gillespie makes a claim in the video that you sent that the the enlightenment the cult like that that cultural and scientific revolution partially throughout time at least influenced or if not was correlated with some of the darker aspects of humanity mm. coming to coming to to show on a, on a grand stage like the gulags of the soviet union like the nazi concentration camps so we want to make make a clear distinction we're not commenting on causality here but how might the enlightenment have led to that yeah, I think it's clear. It's it's important to open by saying that we're not necessarily saying that this is the natural result of that thought process, because if it were, then that would be kind of like taking away all of its value in large part. So um, it's kind of what you were just talking about with the whole notion of having a vacuum. So mm -hmm. if if the if part of the enlightenment was a reaction to the the prior power structures that were to a large degree religious in nature, mm -hmm. and so they were providing sort of an alternative system that was built more on logic, reasoning, science, all the stuff I've been talking about, which is great. But the, the thing about that is if you take away sort of your, your moral compass or the moral authority of God, you, you don't want to take that away without providing a good framework alternative for how do you decide, like, well, like we were talking about in the, in the previous episode about good versus evil, for example. Mm -hmm. And if you take that away, if you create that vacuum, that's where I think some of the darker aspects can come in because we don't have like that guidance that humanity needs because I think that in that, in the presence or the absence of that leads to potentially dark places right well that vacuum is basically what nihilism is essentially yeah that that's what you get the, the, so um <laughs> i i think what 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 came to mind is i was uh, when i was messaging you the other night i was talking about the founding of america the, the united states of america and yeah the america didn't break away from britain to form a new country they formed a new country to break away from from Britain, right? And it was, but it, it was a sort of a, a skepticism. Obviously, there was economic policy p parts to play in all of this, but right. you know, there was there was at the very minimum there was a sort of a, a skepticism about the, having loyalty to the crown that even allowed America to begin. 
And well, and there was there was also like I don't want to get too political here, but there was a yeah. political element to it too, which was the whole like taxation without representation aspect of it. So I think it's like you're in a system where you feel like there's not really room for progress, and I think that to me is like one of the dangers of accepting the skeptical approach of the um, the the at some aspects of postmodernism can make you think that essentially you're stuck in the system and that there's really no way to advance or make progress beyond the rules of the game that you're playing. Right. Right. Uh, and I think we need a way out of that if we want to provide a reasonable answer, any answer at all, really to this. So, sorry. Can you, can you, if you mind just uh, exp- re-explaining to, to me and the, uh, the audience, what you just said in, in slightly like different terms, or can you just rephrase it in, in a way like that? We don't want to get stuck. Correct me if I'm wrong. We don't want to get stuck in a sort of, a helpless state of mind where we feel like we can't change the, the status quo. Is that what you're saying? Right. If, if we think that like the very constructs of, of language and, and all the other like narratives, if, if, you know, if you're being skeptical of meta narratives themselves, and if that skepticism leads to you believing that because of the narratives we live in, that essentially you can't advance beyond the narrative you're living under, then that puts pretty severe limitations on what, what possibility for progress you have within that system. Mm-hmm. And then you're, you're going to either just accept that and t- sort of take a more nihilistic approach of just, you know, there's, there's no point to it anymore because I, I, you know, we've, we've hit a limit of what we can do, or maybe you're going to say, be more revolutionary about it and say, let's just tear down the whole system. And that's that the danger of that is, well, there's obviously like, you know, there's throwing there's, out the baby with the bathwater. Well, not only that, but you're also creating that vacuum that we were just talking about by throwing out everything, which, you know, very rarely by tearing down the whole system, do you then immediately lead to a better system? There's going to be chaos, obviously. Right. Well, postmodernism in its current form kind of operates under this hypothesis of power dynamics and how all hierarchies are based on power. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you tear down the system with that in mind, thinking I'm tearing down the old power dynamic and the old power system, what you're actually doing is you're sort of projecting that the next system that will be made will actually be founded on those beliefs, right? If if you take the view that there is a better system out there, if, if you're not, because the, the other approach that you talked about was the, the more nihilistic approach of just, there is no way to do this. So let's just, you know, get rid of it all. Right. Well, it seems that there's a healthy balance of skepticism. And that was kind of one of the questions that I wanted to ask you. What, what, and eudaimonia, we've talked about this a couple of times, but yeah, for lack of a better term, it's the finding the balance between cowardice and recklessness. Hmm. So what would be a, you know, an example of, of cowardness, cowardliness with respect to skepticism. Would it, would it be just having no skept? I think that it would be having no skepticism would be considered cowardly. Like you're just going to accept everything that everyone tells you no matter what. Right. I mean, that's a very dogmatic approach to life. It's, it's essentially, you're just being fed the narrative and you're just accepting it as it is. Right. 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 Which I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of the caricature of how the postmodernists see our world. Exactly. But on the flip side of that, there's the reckless side of skepticism. Yeah. So do, do you think that, I mean, where do, where do you see that? I mean, obviously recklessness is a problem, but I mean, can, are there any thought experiments that come to mind when you think of what's a reckless application of skepticism? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it comes down to how you derive value and meaning or like we were talking about in the, in the previous episode. So I think like one fundamental thing that we can hopefully agree on, at least those of us who are rational and reasonable, mm-hmm. um, is that which um, is counter to the survival of both the individual and the uh, species is like it's 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 a it's not a healthy skepticism at that point. 
Right. Like if you're skeptical of the fact that we need we need some social structure in place to rely on each other to get basic needs met, for mm-hmm. example. Yeah. And so I think there's a certain amount that we can sort of discount just because it's counter to our survival. But where things get tougher is that in our society today, we, we're, we're quickly approaching. I think we've almost reached if we haven't already reached a point where the survival aspects are no longer like what's our primary motivators in life. Um, I mean, at least in the first world, let's say, because I mean, there are, there are some areas of the, of the planet where survival is still like the primary motivator and they haven't a certain level of, let's say comfort hasn't been reached yet, but let's, Mm -hmm. let's just focus on the, the area of the world that we live in where compared to the, compared to most of the world, we live pretty comfortably. Let's, let's be honest here. And so what I'm getting at here though, is I think that, that opens up a whole nother can of worms with how do you then where, how do you derive value and how do you decide where to aim your life or like, what is, you know, what's the important things, what, Mm -hmm. um, what's the meaning, what, I think the, the, the part of that that I, I want to focus on is like where you need to aim at. Um, how do you decide that in a world where it's no longer your survival that you're trying to incur or trying to enable? It's it's different things. It's it's kind of more in line with the eudaimonic or eudaimonia <laughs> approach that you were just talking about where we, we're focused more on sort of the higher levels in the hierarchy of needs that give us things like fulfillment and purpose and all of those aspects of life. And I think those aspects are not as clearly like they're not as clear cut as the survival ones, because there's a lot, it seems to me like there's actually a lot of valid approaches that can lead to like a flourishing life or, or, or eudaimonia and those types of things. And I think because there are multiple valid approaches to that, you, you, you end up getting in this sort of confusing world of, of how to weigh them against each other. And that's part of what leads to in, in the postmodern interpretation, like why, um, you need to be skeptical of those. Right. That was a really good answer. <laughs> I just genuinely enjoyed listening to that. Okay. I, it, I, I knew there was a thought in there somewhere. No, you, you got it, man. That was uh, that was, that was like a really good, uh, that was a really good, a bass solo or guitar <laughs> solo. Like that was like a, yeah. when Eddie Van Halen's doing a rough, okay. I was, so, I was thinking about it in the previous chapter, but I didn't quite get it out of my head yet. Well, so back to something you said in the previous chapter, which was, you know, is it better to be like a frog in boiling water or Mm -hmm. is it better to have a sudden, a sudden rapid change? Like, like, I don't know if a war would be an example. And I think that's a really difficult question. It actually makes me uncomfortable to even try to want to unpack that answer, Mm -hmm. partially because, you know, the, the, the manner in which we're speaking, it's, it's largely going to be permanent. We're going to put it out on the internet and it's like, I'm not going to be able to modify the idea in this video after it's been published. So I, you know, I want to preface what I'm, what we're about to say here. This is kind of like, for me, it, it feels like dangerous territory. Right. I, and I, if you remember in the same chapter, I was also talking about how we need to take our thoughts to sort of their, um, inconvenient or uncomfortable conclusions. And this might be one of those uncomfortable conclusions of the way we look at morality. And it, you have to then decide, is that something I'm willing to accept? Or does that then lead you to be skeptical of somewhere along the process? Your what you what led you to that? Oh my gosh! I mean, I'm kind of breaking my brain with this thought experiment I've been putting in my head. But it's it goes back to the Jovian the, the yep. Jovian thought experiment, where it's like, is it better to actually like if you were aware of the need for to create evil in order mm-hmm. to create good? 
wouldn't actually creating evil be an act of good? Yeah, I I don't know. Meta, I, or a meta good, let's yeah, say. I don't remember if you'd said this during a recording process or if this was outside of it, but um, is there a certain amount of evil that is at least acceptable, if not even necessary, in the world? Well, I mean, it, pain, I think it, Sam Harris talks about evil as being sort of like unnecessary pain, right? So it's like, but we don't understand how to really orient ourselves without pain right? right yeah and and that that gets into sort of when you're leading to comfortable a life and uh, there was an experiment you talked about with regards to um some sort of utopian society that or sort of utopian experiment with with i forget what animal it was but it was, it was mice it was mice yeah so the utopian mice experiment where eventually uh you might have the details of it but but essentially like the, everything sort of like one, once they reach a certain level of comfort they stopped um they stopped they stopped doing a lot of the the more uh the the things that ensured their survival right it well i actually have a hypothesis and you actually said that we as humans we don't have a, an ability to, to conceptualize our communities beyond 150 or 200 individuals We're not, yeah i forget what the source on that was but there's there's something i've, I've heard that source too though yeah there, there's somewhere between somewhere below 200 people is what i've heard is like kind of the, the it, it it comes down to sort of when you build networks you can only have so many different interconnected nodes in the network before you, it, you your brain can't under can't comprehend it anymore, right? Right. So obviously, there's a scalability problem there, and we're we're hitting that with a lot of societies that have large cities and things like that. Right. I mean, our brains are biological computers, and we we basically run out of disk space at about 200 people. The ability. So, but but back to the mice. I think that if that's true of humans, it must be true of all creatures. And I think what happened in that mouse utopia experiment is they created a. a a large space that could have housed thousands of, of mice and I think they started with maybe like a couple of hundred if I'm, if I'm not mistaken mm. and and they and they watched the it repopulate and the the space was never filled up and so and what they were given food exercise right. you know mating like it was just it was just all free-for-all and so what happened is is it almost seemed like like uh, like a cell when it gets like too big or an amoeba gets too big it like kind of like just breaks apart you know mm -hmm. like when when cells grow in a eukaryotic individual like ourselves you know that we go through mitosis the cell divides you know it doesn't just keep the the, the volume to surface area ratio doesn't like just keep expanding you mm -hmm. know the cell grows to a certain healthy and then it and then it separates right right so if a society gets too big to the point where you know that 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 category that it doesn't separate into the proper categories if it's just like this one globular state it's almost, I think the, what happened with the mice is they started to, they were living in a society where they, they were beyond their comprehension of, of, of recognizing how big their society actually was. And mm. it created a sort of paranoia and that, and that level of, and, and sorry for <laughs> bumping the mic. And just, yeah. Ah, um, they, the, the love, the comfort level that was achieved started to turn turn on itself. Right. Leave right. It. And I, I don't, obviously I don't know what's in mice's head, but I have a feeling that there might have also been an element of, of what I was talking about where when you have all of your basic needs fulfilled without you having to expend any effort that you sort of lose that drive, that aim, that purpose in, in life um, because you no longer have to take any initiative to do anything. So you start like you, you, you lose your, your compass in a way in terms of like, well, what do I do now? And so that, you know, sort of leads to your eventual decay. Right. Well, I mean, just think about what astronauts go through when they're in space, you know, without that constant force of gravity, mm -hmm. which I keep coming back to it, but it's so profound for me is that, you know, with, that is an example of a stressor. You know, that's an example of something that's 
pulling you down all the time, but that's the only way that we know to stand up straight. That's the only way. Yeah. And would, would humans under like zero stress or under a, a lack of, shall we say, um, challenges, I think is the best word I can or, think or of for force this. even or force. Yeah. So I think there's, there's a lot of notions of utopia that take into the, the, the view that we should basically completely control nature and that we should remove anything that causes us, you know, stress or pain or, or any of those sorts of things. And in the abstract, that sounds good because each of those things individually we don't enjoy, but when you remove all of them, like it kind of creates a new vacuum in a way, right? It's like, what do you replace that with? <sighs> right. Well, if you were back to, it's like the ideal observer hypothesis and the, and the Jovian thought experiment, right? Like if, if you had control of nature, like if you were like, uh, uh, omnipowerful, if you were all powerful, it's yeah. like you would, you would have to, if in understanding how life operates, which is, I think we have a hypothesis on how life operates, stress creates growth to a certain extent, a eudaimonia, a eudaimonia in terms of stress. Right. So I'm, I, I want to be clear here. We're not necessarily saying that all stress, all pain, all evil is necessary and causes improvement because I think it's important to, we need for the purpose of morality, we still need to be able to separate out what are the, what are the things that sort of, that do, um, tend to improve us versus which things are not a net mm -hmm. improvement to right. us. I mean, if you want to take a more extreme stoic view, you might say that, you know, there's some good in all of those or that all of them are leading to improvements. And that that's probably true from some viewpoint, but I think the problem with that is then you're, you're not, you're not leaving much room open for making like progress. And I think we still need to leave that room open. Right. And back to, back to freedom of speech. That's mm. how you leave that room open for progress. Mm. The ability to criticize your own criticisms. <laughs> yep. So I, I think that that'll do it for this chapter, sir. Yeah. Wolf, it's been a pleasure. It's Lyle. Bye audience. <laughs> Later Olympians. <laughs>